This is Super Investors and the Art of Worldly Wisdom. I'm Jesse Felder. Object to the test! This episode is brought to you by the Felder Report. Um, each week I go through a ton of reading and research. In fact, it's how I spend all my mornings, uh, first several hours of the day, going through a variety of sources. And uh, at the end of the week, I pull together what I found to be the most valuable. It could be a link, a chart, a tweet. Um, and I put it together in a quick uh, Saturday morning email goes out uh, totally free. So if it's something you'd be interested in getting, go to thefelderreport.com, sign up right there on the homepage, and you'll be all set. My guest for this episode is Grant Williams. Uh, you may know Grant already from Real Vision. Uh, Real Vision is revolutionizing uh, financial video uh, and interviews. And um, Grant's had the chance to just interview a number of brilliant people over the last couple of years. It was just really one of the major inspirations for me starting this podcast was just jealousy, straight up jealousy for what Grant gets to do. But Grant is a brilliant guy in his own right, and he's just far too humble. Um, we get to talk about a number of fascinating experiences of his uh, throughout this conversation. He uh, started his career in the throes of one of the greatest speculative manias in history, the Japanese equity um, and uh, real estate bubble in the late 1980s. Um, and we, we discuss a number of other uh, fascinating experiences that he's had, um, not the least of which was what he's learned over the last couple of years, interviewing some of the most um, successful investors and uh, and even reclusive investors on, on the planet. So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Grant Williams. I wonder why fund managers can't beat the S&P 500? Because they're sheep. And sheep get slaughtered. All right, Grant Williams, uh, welcome to the show, buddy. I'm really honored to have this chance to turn the microphone around and pick your brain. Oh, Jesse, the honor is is categorically all mine. Thanks for having me. Well, you are, you know, probably my favorite interviewer um, that I've seen. You, I mean, just make it make it look easy. Uh, you did an interview recently with Felix Zuloff, which I really enjoyed, um, and I've actually enjoyed all of your. The, the new series that you've been doing. But uh, in that interview, you called yourself a natural skeptic. Where does that natural skepticism come from? Do, do you know what? I, I think it's age. I really do think it's age. I, I, I think over the years, I've, I've become uh, a bigger skeptic just because of what I watch go on. And, uh, you know, I, I, I began my career in the most raging of bull markets in Japan in the mid 1980s. So, uh, you know, t two things happened, I guess. I, I saw just unbridled optimism and, and a, just a, a reckless bull market up close, uh, which, is, which is, you know, where I cut my teeth. Um, but I also very fortunately, I guess, uh, looking back on it, witnessed the, the 87 crash up close. So, so I had that, that grounding and I, and I got a really good understanding of, of what happens when enthusiasm just goes wild. And I also learned very quickly and very painfully uh, how bad things can get when when gravity reasserts itself. So so I think as I've watched um, over the last 35 years, as I've watched uh, the, the bullishness get out of control on several occasions, and I think I've watched uh, everything be done from from a policy um, and, uh, and a central bank perspective to, to keep that enthusiasm as unbridled as possibly as possible and to and to to you know apprehend any kind of return to normality I, i've become more skeptical because the 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 enthusiasm is unnatural it, it's artificial uh, and it's very carefully uh, if not very carefully orchestrated then certainly very carefully protected so so i guess as that that reluctance to allow the natural forces uh, to take effect has has become more insistent. I've become more skeptical. Yeah, and I think you know those of us who've been seen you know Enrons and Worldcoms in in real time. You see, you remember, and, uh, and things you see you know today in real time remind you of those events. But I, I think it's I, it also reminds me of I think Stan Druckenmiller 
said that, uh, you know, the early part of his career is really, really successful because he just so happened to be beginning his career in a raging bull market and had no skepticism to hold him to rein him in. So, yeah, um, yeah, no, that's that's interesting. Let's talk about where where. So you were in Japan when you started your career. And uh, what 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 did that look like? Well, I mean, I, I was a young kid who didn't have the first idea what he was doing, frankly. And, uh, you know, I'd always wanted to be in finance. My my um, my uncle, Harry, when I was about eight or nine years old, was the coolest guy I knew. And so whenever people asked me what I wanted to do when I grew up, it was I want to be I want to do whatever Uncle Harry does. I had no idea what that was, but I just wanted to be the cool guy with the nice car and the, and the cool house. And he used to do card tricks for me and. He was just a fun guy to be around, and, and, I, and I discovered later on that he was a foreign exchange uh, dealer. So that was what I wanted to be. I had no idea what it was, um, and uh, and I very fortunately, I, I, I actually got a job in my in my school holidays when I should have been studying for my exams, um, to, uh, in the sort of uh, settlements department of what was then the Eurobond department at uh, at a. At a Merchant Bank in the UK called Robert Fleming and Co., which later got swallowed up by Chase. But this was a, a very storied um, merchant bank from the UK. The Fleming family uh, ran it and, and several members of the Fleming family had prominent positions at the bank. And this is the same Fleming family of Alexander Fleming, who discovered penicillin and, and Ian Fleming that wrote James Bond. This was this was the same family. Um, and so I worked in my in my school holidays. And, and after they had finished, I was offered the guy said, look, when you when you finished your exams. If you want a job here, there's a job here for you. And so, you know, I, I planned to go to university and read history, which is just a great love of mine. And I, and I you know, I, I remember speaking to my father and saying, you know, what should I do? I've been offered this job. Uh, and uh, I, I'm also going to go to university and read history. What do you think I should do? And, and my dad said, well, when you come out of university, what is it you want to do? And I said, well, kind of the job on the other side of the wall to this job I've been offered. And he said, well, you know, you could spend four years at, at university and, and then come out and try and get that job on the other side of the wall, or you can take it now and and, uh, and take your chances. And, you know, back in the 80s, you could do that. You could you could come out of, of high school um, and get a job without a college degree. And, uh, you know, it was funny, in years to come when I would, um, when I'd, I'd move around the world and each time I moved, you had to fill in a whole bunch of forms to get uh, work permits and stuff in, in foreign countries. And there's a there's a test that you can do if you don't have uh, a college degree, they uh, they assume I think it's three years of of real world experience in the job you are uh, looking to get is equivalent to a one year of a of a degree course. So you know twelve years in in the real world is the equivalent to to a college degree. And I, I would argue <laughs> so perhaps they've got those numbers skewed based on what happened to me in the first twelve years of my career in terms of you know the Japanese bull market and bust and the the Nasdaq uh, bull market and bust, but um, but that's kind of how it happened. And uh, I, I fell into the Japanese, funny the Japanese government bond market was the first uh, market I was offered to trade. And back then it, it actually traded. There were there were there were real yields on Japanese government bonds. And I was fortunate enough to sit with uh, a guy called George who'd been around a long time, had seen it all. <clears throat> you know, when I look back now. You know, I, I recognize the skeptic in George, too. <laughs> so perhaps I'm, I'm gradually becoming him over the year. But he was a, a great mentor to me and, and taught an awful lot about not only markets, but also about shutting up and listening to people. And, and, and you know, he said to me, surround yourself with smart people, as many of them as you can, and then just sit in the corner and listen. And so that's what I tried to do. Uh, but that Japanese bull market was was crazy. I mean, the market just went up every single day, day after day after day. And I think being being young and and having no real experience it was very easy to to just hold your nose and buy stuff because you you had no frame of reference and, and if you find yourself trading at, at the time i was trading uh, at that point japanese equity warrants um when you find yourself in a market that goes up every day you don't question it you you just you just ride the trend and so it became actually one of the easiest jobs i've had was to was to trade that bull market um and I think the the interesting thing, you know, we went through the '87 crash, which was uh, shocking to see, you know, 20 odd percent of a market disappear in a day. But we came back very quickly, and and the the Japanese bubble was interesting in many ways, particularly to me because it didn't really burst. It, it stopped going up, 
and it started going down and it went down for a number of years. So I think for a lot of people, it was very difficult to, to change their behavior. Uh, and I think from, from the end of 89 uh, through sort of 92, 93, it, it took a lot of people that long to realize that things had really, really changed in Japan and the trend was now lower. Um, but it did then trend for you know the best part of 20 years in the other direction. So I, you know, it, it, it was a market that gave you everything you needed in terms of an education. Um, and I, I guess it's up to, to you then to pick out the lessons that, that you want to keep with you and, and uh, hopefully learn from them. Well, and it's interesting to me that, you know, the Nikkei still hasn't recovered that 1990 high. Um, one of the, you know, I had an interesting conversation with Diego Perea recently. He was talking about his definition of a bubble he gets from George Soros, which is it always, you know, you have to have prices go nuts, but you also have to have some fundamental belief that is just wrong, that's driving, you know, prices. And I think, to me, one of the beliefs behind the current bull market in, in the U.S., equity market, is that, you know, stocks have never seen a 20-year period in the U.S. where they've been down over a 20-year period. And that's, first of all, it's not true. From 1929 to, it took till the mid-50s to regain 50s, the, yeah. 20, the 29 high. But I, I think, you know, I, I guess what I would ask you is, do you, the, the, that Japanese equity bull market, would you, how does it compare to our dot-com mania or even to today's U.S. stock market in your mind? Well, it was, I mean, when you think about what Japan was back then, I mean, look, there were all kinds of explanations, the export miracle, we were talking about, you know, these Japanese technology companies that were going to take over the world, the Sony's, Toshiba's, Panasonic's of the world. Um, and, and most importantly, I think it was Japanese capital flowing overseas and buying every trophy asset you could think of. And it really was, uh, there was a sense there that Japan was bulletproof and it was going to take over the world. And if you look at the chart of the Nikkei going back there, you'll see, um, you'll see just a crazy looking chart. But, but, you know, I remember at the time not feeling as if it was a crazy market. There were, there were statistics, there were um, you know, anecdotal piece of evidence that, that the classic one that everybody's heard of was, was this. And, and I still to this day don't know if it's true, but I, I, I guess it could have been was that the land beneath the emperor's palace in Tokyo was worth more than the state of California. I mean, it, it sounds ludicrous saying that now, particularly if, you, if you've seen the size of the palace in the middle of Tokyo. But but at the time, it was things like that that made you think, well, this this just can't go on. But it never, ever felt to me like the market does today in terms of of just being stretched and overvalued on every possible metric. And I don't know if that's because the world is now, you know, best part of 30 years older or not, um, or, or whether it's because I am. I don't know. But uh, but I never got that sense that everywhere I looked, I, I was having to hold my nose and ignore everything I knew and just buy stuff. Interesting. You know, one thing that I've noticed, and and because I've I've discussed this comparison in the past, people today, there's no way the U.S. stock market is as overvalued as the Japanese stock market was back then. But when you look at market cap to GDP, uh, Japanese market got up to about 130 percent of GDP, uh, Japanese GDP back then in 1990. Today, the U.S. stock market is like 160 percent. Of U.S. GDP, so based on this like Buffett yardstick, we're more overvalued in U.S. than than we were in, in Japan back then. So, um, you know, I think that's something that people don't quite pay much attention to. Well, well um, the beauty is, Jesse, you know, there, there, there are so many ways to measure these things, and I think there's there's a metric for everybody depending on your opinion. You know, you can you can you can find something to justify your stance in just about any market. Uh, you know, people will look at the corporate profit expectations and say, well, this market's got further to go. And other people will look at your metric there, the Buffett indicator, and say, well, this market's gone way too far. It, the, the interesting thing to, that I've noticed over the, over the last couple of years particularly is, is the number of people that, that, I've, that I've talked to, and you just get this sense that they have, they've decided the market's going to go up until it goes down. Um, for whatever reason, whether it's the, the, the last vestiges of this crazy liquidity uh, expansion into the markets or, or whatever, it doesn't really matter. But, but the answer is it's going up and now I need to reverse engineer 
a logical reason as to why, because I have to be able to justify this either to my customers or my investors. And I can't just say, look, I'm long because it's going up. And, and I really got that feel as though people have thought, OK, how can I reverse engineer a reason to buy this market here? And and I totally understand it. I totally understand why people are doing it because because if you're going to buy a market that you instinctively think is heavily overvalued, you have to come up with something that you can get comfortable with um, that gives you the justification of doing so. And and for the people that have managed to do that, it's worked out very well for them. I mean, the last couple of years, not so much, but we haven't seen a major fall. Um, but you know, when you see guys like David Rosenberg change his tune and become very bearish, I always start to listen because um, Rosie's had tremendous confidence and tremendous conviction for a while now. And he's, he's completely turned. I guess the last person to turn is going to be Lacey Hunt, who's another man that I, I, I just paid tremendous attention to because he's been right when everybody's been wrong through the bond market. And so I, you know, I think the best you can do is, is look for people whose views you respect and, and whose, whose process uh, you, you have admiration for and listen to them very carefully when they talk, particularly if they start to, to waver on a conviction call. Absolutely. And I, I want to come back to the the education um, discussion because you said you made the, the choice to skip going to university. I remember I was thinking about going back and getting an MBA after I left um, the hedge fund uh, you know, 15, 20 years ago or something. And I was reading, I had read a ton of, you know, Warren Buffett at the time and, you know, his, his position was they teach you all the wrong things in business school. So I decided not to go back and I actually never studied business or took a single economics class in college. And I really think now looking back, it it probably helped me stay much more open-minded in a variety of different ways. But I get questions from, you know, younger people all the time. How do I begin a career in finance and, and should I, you know, get a CFA, MBA, you know, what would your advice to those folks be? I, I would be the last person to ever denigrate education. I think I think getting an education is is crucially important. Um, and I think to, the, the, well, it's interesting. I, I've, the, the, the ease with which you can get a job without a college degree uh, has basically vanished for, for, for sort of 20 years. It was it was almost impossible to get an interview. I remember being um, at uh, a large investment bank in in New York, and then the sort of the summer intern list would come across the desk, and you know, I'd I'd be the last guy to get them just based on where I was sitting on the desk, and and I'd watch um, my colleagues kind of weed people out based on the school they'd been to. You know, it, 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 there's this there's this cookie cutter approach to, okay, if you have a certain degree from a certain school, you're our kind of people, um, which I think is detrimental, particularly one year when there was, to me, there was one standout candidate through who'd gone through the intern program. And I'd actually been away uh, on vacation when he started. And, and I, I caught the last couple of days of him in the office. And by then he was, he was in the rotation, he was doing his thing. So we didn't really get a chance to talk about his background much, but I just I, I, I t- talked about what we were doing and, and um, you know, how he was helping us out on the floor. And he was, to me, head and shoulders above the other candidates I'd seen. And, and so when the reviews came up at the end, you know, I flagged this guy. I said, look, th- this guy, I, I would hire and I'd mentor him tomorrow because there was something about this guy. I thought he was tremendous. And it was only after going through that process that I, I found out that he'd, he'd, uh, he'd left school and he'd gone to work on the floor of the exchange for a couple of years and then gone back to college uh, as you were thinking of doing to get his degree and and i i guess that 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 couple of years of real world experience really rounded off some of the edges that you're you're just never going to get rounded off you in in college i think you have to you have to at some point cut your teeth in the real world and to your point the real world is never like it is at school that you the the real world of markets and finance is never going to be like it is in the textbooks how could it be but I think the last 10, 15 years have strayed so far from what you would learn at school. Um, I, I, as I, said, I would never discourage someone from going to school. But I, but I think if you're not in business school or, or getting a degree in finance and reading voraciously everything you can that's outside your curriculum, I think you're doing yourself a, a massive disservice. Yeah. Yeah. You, so you mentioned you worked in New York. Did you? You've worked in essentially every financial 
center around the world, haven't you? Where, uh, where did you go from Japan? Was that did you go? Well, to... Japan. I went back to to the UK briefly, um, and uh, and I found myself trading South Korean warrants and convertible bonds when uh, Kim uh, Il Sung was on his deathbed before he gave way to Kim Jong Il. Uh, that was an interesting time because of all, you know, all the political pressures. I mean, the same thing we, we've kind of seen through Korea throughout the years. Um, and so watching the Asia market kind of be very, very volatile. I mean, some of the some of the swings in the trading based on pronouncements coming out of Pyongyang were, were extraordinary back then. Uh, and we had all kinds of ownership limits on uh, on foreign ownership in in stocks, and uh, we had preferred shares trading over regular shares. All the kind of education that you, you would again, to your point, never get in a textbook. Um, but then I moved to the U.S. in in '96, I think it was, and, and I spent uh, a bunch of years in in New York, um, initially with with UBS, but then quite soon after I got there, the UBS credit uh, SBC merger happened, and I, and I ended up at. Uh, at Credit Suisse, where where I, I, I thoroughly enjoyed working, I was trading all the all the Asian uh, ADRs, um, uh, Aussie shares, all kinds of overseas stuff in a, in a dead market in terms of the underlying markets being closed. But it was it was a fascinating fascinating period because we we traded right through the the dot com bubble, obviously, um, and through the Asian crisis. So it was a fascinating time. And through LTCM, and I mean, yeah, I think yeah. people a lot of people forget that that that. Late 90s was not just dot-com mania. Really, the dot-com stuff started after that 98, or really kind of the blow-off was after that 98, uh, you know, kind of debacle. Um, well, and, the, and the, you know, the Russian default as well, which was, which was a hugely important thing to happen at Credit Suisse because, uh, you know, they had a very, very big exposure to that, to that Russian uh, debt. So, yeah, there, were, there was almost like a, a cascade of, of big events happening all around the world, one after the other. You know, the, the, the dot-com burst was really the culmination of all those things. Right. And then so you eventually um, got out of trading and started your newsletter, things that make you go, hmm. what was it that, that, that inspired you to, to make that change? Uh, pure dumb luck, frankly. Um, I, I never had any thought of, of starting that. I, I found myself... Um, after a, a confluence of events in Singapore, with uh, with a sales trading role for the first time in my career, you know, I'd been I'd been a, I'd been a trader and um, had this fantastic back and forward with with sales traders who all thought we were useless and we all thought they were useless. But but finding myself in front of a phone um, with no clients and trying to figure out, all right, well, how do I? I mean, my my thought process was very simple: how do I add value? Or how do I not be a time suck to people? And uh, I, I was fortunate enough to, to know a lot of guys on the buy side from, from my trading days because they, you know, they all wanted to talk to the trader and find out what was going on. And so I, I emailed a, a whole bunch of people that I knew and said, look, um, I've got a, you know, four or five questions for you. Have you got time to answer them? And, and what I found was remarkable. You know, I was asking people how many morning rundowns they used to get on their Bloomberg terminals and how many you know, afternoon wrap-ups they used to get and how many Bloomberg messages a day. Um, and it was extraordinary. Everyone was getting upwards of 30 morning rundowns from different brokers and the same number of uh, evening wrap-ups. And I said, you know, how many of these do you read? And, and pretty much universally, everybody said, that we, I read one. I read the same guy every day and I have a backup guy in case he's off. And it wasn't the same guy every time, but everyone had picked their one favorite piece that, that gave them the information they needed and i'm sitting there thinking wow you know there's a bunch of people here wasting so much of their time putting this stuff together if you're not one of the three or four guys that most people read this is just a massive time suck for you and also for the people that you're sending it to and so you know i i wanted to come up with something that people would want to read and if they did take the time to read it it, it would actually inform them and, and give them perhaps a different perspective. So I just started um, putting together a, a, a day. It was a daily piece back then of, of, of pieces that were, that were under the radar that weren't being uh, widely talked about. And, and this was pre Twitter, pre the ability to kind of collect all this uh, disparate financial information in one place. So I, you know, I just I'd get up early and I and I look in all kinds of weird and wonderful corners of the internet for you know early blogs and stuff that I, that I thought was was interesting and and would either affect markets 
maybe not that day, but but would certainly lead to having an effect on markets. And I'd put a piece together and, I, and I'd write my own commentary on, on why I thought this stuff was important. Um, and, and, you know, it, it, I kind of sent it out to, to friends and, and they asked me to put friends on the list and other friends. And uh, I eventually left the role I was I was in and I just sent out an email to the guys that I'd, I'd been sending this stuff to and said, look, you know, it's my last day and keep in touch. Here's my home email address and, you know, God bless you all and stuff. And uh, and by the time I got home, you know, I had you know 50 or 60 people saying, if you write this piece at your next shop, can you please put me on the list? So that's kind of how it got born. Um, it was just an attempt to, to, to differentiate myself and, and take a look at things that perhaps weren't immediately on, on, on the radars of, of the vast majority of people. And it, and it just kind of, it just accidentally caught traction, Jesse, to be honest with you. And people, I guess they liked having that slightly off the wall perspective and, um, you know, they liked the way I phrased that stuff and, and it just kind of took off from there. It was, it was a pure accident. I wish I could claim it was some genius strategy on my part, but I'd be lying to you. And I'd never do that to you, Jesse. <laughs> well, do you still see it as as your? I think your your purpose for writing the newsletter, finding those underappreciated trends and, and bringing that to the attention of your readers. You you think that's your your real purpose with it? Yeah, look, I I, I think it's it's such a it, it's such a hectic bombardment of information these days. Um, and, and it's easy to get caught up in stuff. And, and you know, when you read, the, the, it always makes me laugh when you, when you read the market will fall 300 points and there'll be a, 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 an article out on Bloomberg or Reuters you know, five minutes after the close saying the market fell because traders did this. I'm like, no, that's not why the market fell. There's not one reason for the market falling. Sometimes it'll go up or down three, 400 points out of thin blue sky. You have no idea why it's happening. So you know, I'd, I'd rather take my time and, and talk about things that certainly aren't front and center. Um, and if they are, try and talk about them in a slightly different way and, and try and bring in a bunch of elements that, that might influence the key issue that people might not be talking about or thinking about. And it really, it, it's, a, it's an attempt, uh, however successful or not on my part, to, to make people think about different ways that, that that certain trends or certain events could be affecting both markets uh, and whether it's individual stocks or, or different countries, it's just an attempt to say, hey, look, you know, have you have you thought about this? Because sometimes it's it's not the thing you see in front of you, but it's it's the the, the issue hiding right behind it. That, that unless you kind of crane your neck to one side, you're never going to see it. Well, and you covered a ton of different topics in in the letter. Um... Where did you said you know back when you started doing this process, it was kind of like just scouring the internet. Where do you get most of your inspiration from these days? <laughs> you know, someone else asked me this recently, and and I, I I searched desperately for an answer for him because the answer's just too ridiculous. When, when, if I if I told you where some of these ideas come to me from, you'd just think I was a complete lunatic. But it, it would it would just be. Yeah, I, I walk down the street and see a sign on the side of a cab that will get me thinking about something, or or else you know I'll overhear a, a, a smidgen of a conversation from two people that you know when I'm waiting in line at Starbucks, and it just it just sends my mind off down these tangents, thinking you know well this is this is interesting. I wonder why they're thinking like that. I wonder why they're they're talking about that, and and it and it's it's amazing where I end up from those from those random stray. Uh, stray events. It, it, it might be I'll walk down the street and see you know, four Starbucks on, on different corners of one intersection. Well, you know, what does that mean? What, what, what's that telling us? Is that telling us something about the real estate market? Is it telling us something about Starbucks? Is it telling us something about coffee shops or, or, or the trend consumption trends? I don't know. It could be all of those things. But, but it, 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 it's amazing if you look around, um, traveling through airports, traveling to different countries, you, you see things that, that if you're paying attention and and you've got time to think about them will will take you off in, in all kinds of directions. And, and I just find the way everything interacts with everything else, I, I just, I, I mean, I truly find it fascinating. And, and I, you know, I can honestly say I've been writing things that make go home for, I think, nine years now. And there's not been a single week in those nine years where I haven't had to sit down and think, okay, which of these things am I going to write about this week? And pick one rather than sit down and think, geez, what the hell am I going to write about this week? The world is, to me, has never been more fascinating, particularly the finance world. Um, 
and uh, you know, I, 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 I think that fascination is going to have a very bad ending. But in the meantime, there is never a shortage of of subjects to kind of to, to take a look at and try and come at from a slightly different direction. That, that's so interesting. I think, you know, paying attention to what's going on around you. I, I'll just tell you, you know, here in Bend, Oregon, during the real estate bubble, there were times we were the number one or, mo- or two most overvalued real estate market in the country <laughs> back in 2005, six. And literally you'd go to, you know, parties. It's all anybody could talk about. Oh, I pulled out equity out of this house and I levered it into two more. And it was such a good sign that, you know, I mean, yeah. and it reminded me so much of the dot com mania. Uh, I was back in December. I was I was playing hockey. I just showed up. You know, it was like a Friday afternoon at one o'clock. I went to go play pickup hockey, and in the locker room afterwards, one guy just starts. There was only like eight of us in the locker room, and one guy starts talking about Bitcoin, and three or four other guys out of the eight of us chime in and say, "Oh yeah, I just bought some." And I'm like, right, right. You know, just paying attention is like, wait a second, fifty percent of these guys in this locker room right yeah. now own Bitcoin. You got to be kidding me. And so, yeah, yeah, you're absolutely uh, right. Uh, Just paying attention to what's going on. Well, I completely agree. And, and you know, it's funny because you talk about that Bend, Oregon uh, real estate. That, that, that's such a perfect example because to anybody else that read uh, a survey that put Bend at number one, they'd skip right past that and they'd look for you know, Seattle at number three or they'd look for you know, New York at number four or whatever it may be because they have no understanding of what Bend, Oregon is. But it's only if you live there in the middle of nowhere that that particular nugget will, will hit you so much harder than someone in in uh, you know Chicago reading that data point who's never been to Bend, Oregon, doesn't have any idea what it is, and and it's that that sends you off thinking. Well, geez, if if, if a place like Bend is above Chicago and New York, what does that mean? And, and that that means an awful lot, I think, if, once you start really thinking it through. Yeah, and and exactly right. So and then that's part of the reason. I mean, I I, I didn't move here for that reason. I, I moved here because I can't stand crowds. I mean, I don't. You know, you worked at all the major financial centers. I tried to get the the hell out of Dodge a long time ago because I just I can't stand. Well, I, it, I, I've been fortunate enough to visit with you guys in Bend, and it is a spectacular place. So I, I totally understand it. Shh, don't tell anybody. They're no, already, no, it's, they're already it's, moving uh, here from San Francisco. And I mean, Seattle. you wouldn't live there, obviously. Yeah, you wouldn't want to live there, but it's a great place to visit. <laughs> really, <least>. right. <laughs> Well, let's um, let's change it up a little bit. So, in the last couple of years, um, maybe more than two years, you got you've been involved with uh, starting up Real Vision, and to me, it's it represents a revolution in uh, financial media. It's been really exciting for me to see because I have not paid much attention to ma- major you know financial media outlets for a long, long time. Um, but you guys have done something totally different and more recently it's just it's on fire you guys lowered the price to 180 bucks or something um you took over Times square recently just announced a big new uh round of funding um i mean you guys are doing awesome with this thing what where did the uh how did you first get involved with raul and and the real vision uh idea yeah it's it's uh it's a funny story and it's it's just the perfect example of, of serendipity. I mean, it really is. I mean, Raul, Raul and I were aware of each other, but we'd never met, which, which kind of uh, in a post-mortem of, of that is extraordinary, given the number of mutual friends we have. I mean, it really is remarkable that we'd never met. And um, I, I was talking to a great friend of mine in Singapore uh, you know, five, six years ago, and uh, Raul's name came up. And I said, oh, look, yeah, I, I, said I, I love the work Raul does. I don't see it very often, but I, you know, people forward it to me every now and again say, hey, you know, that thing you're writing about, this guy's talking about the same kind of stuff. It's really interesting. And, and every time I read Raul's work, I was just blown away at the quality of his thinking. And, and my buddy said, oh, yeah, I know, Raul, when he comes to Singapore, we have dinner. I said, well, look, next time he comes, please invite me. I'm happy to buy the dinner, but I really want to meet this guy. And, um, and literally, no more than two weeks later, I get an email from Raul out the blue, and it turned out it had nothing to do with this mutual friend of ours that I'd spoken to. Um, I was working for, for Steve Diggle in, in uh, Singapore when we were raising money for an agricultural fund and Raul had some questions about it. And uh, so we got chatting over email. And, and the next serendipitous thing that happened, I was actually going to Spain to speak at a, at a, a family office conference a few weeks after that. And I haven't been to Spain since you know, I was 17 and was there with all my buddies on, a, on 149 pounds for two weeks full board you know, holiday. And so I emailed around and said, look, I, this is going to sound a bit weird, but I'm, I'm coming to, uh, to Spain. I'd love to buy you dinner and, and you know, meet you and sit and chat. And 
So Rao said, look, I'll tell you what, I'll let you buy me dinner, but in return you can stay at the house and we'll we'll make a night of it. So I said, great. So we, we ended up sitting down in uh, this tiny little fishing village in Spain, Raoul, myself, and, and Raoul's analyst, Remy, and just talking about the world. And, you know, as the conversation evolved through dinner and then Raoul and I sitting out on his, his terrace until some ungodly hour in the morning drinking red wine, um, you know, it was amazing how, how similarly we saw the world. And it was amazing how similar our views were on financial media. You know, we come at it from slightly different angles, but we both kind of had this idea about reinventing financial media. But, you know, it's one of those things that it's such a big concept. So I guess it's not until you really meet someone who can maybe help you do it that you really think seriously about it. And so it was one of those ideas that you have at three o'clock in the morning that, that, that doesn't go away. Most of them do go away the next day. And so... We, we got together again in Hong Kong a few weeks later and spent the weekend in a friend of mine's office in Hong Kong with a whiteboard and you know, really spent the entire weekend thrashing this thing out. And when, when we finished, we all three of us, Remy, Raoul and I, stepped back and kind of said, you know what, that's not the dumbest idea that anyone's ever had. So, so we figured, look, someone's going to do this, so why, why, why not make sure it's us? And, and, and so we started. I mean, and, and we, look, we had no idea really what we wanted to do other than make something better than – what existed that was that that was accessible to more people and and most important to us was just truth it was no spin we're not going to try and sell ads we're not going to try and tell, spin a bullish story let's just find financial people who we, we've been fortunate enough to sit and talk to for 30 years in all sorts of places around the world and look, I don't know, I, I'm sure you'd say the same Jesse but I've never ever sat and talked finance with fellow finance professionals and not walked away from that dinner table or from that bar without thinking, well, that was interesting. You know, there's something in there that, that has either opened my eyes to something or given me something new to think about. And we just wanted to recreate that. What if, what if we can allow people to, to be a fly on the wall to all these amazing conversations that, that you get to have in the world of finance all around the world. And so that was really the driving force. And, uh, you know, I have to say it's been, it's been just a, a, an incredible experience to, to, to do this. Um, you know, Raoul's done a phenomenal job as, as the CEO in terms of the business side of things, which has you know, freed me up to go and, and do a lot of the interviews and, and talk to people around the world. And, um, and between us, and, and, and we've had incredible help on the tech side from Remy and the fourth founder, Damien, um, on, the, on the, the marketing side. It, it's just been an incredible experience, exhausting, exhilarating. We have no idea what we're doing. We've had to pivot the business multiple times, which everyone tells me from watching Silicon Valley is a great thing. I don't know. Um, but but the best part of it has, has been the, the ability to bring conversations to people that wouldn't ordinarily have a chance to listen to them and, and, and talk finance with finance people with, with no agenda and no bias and just see where these conversations go and and the results you know i think personally have been extraordinary absolutely and you know for me i've i i get asked from you know people out you know what what finance you know books would you recommend to get started with and i almost unfailingly recommend uh market wizards because i think it yeah. introduces people to a variety of different um well the most legendary guys you know in the business but then they all have different disciplines um and so it gives you the chance to kind of say hey you know what that guy i can read all these different processes and go you know that guy he i, I really understand and identify with what he's saying and to me you know real vision is that uh, you know, 3D video version of, of Market Wizards, um, but also in real time and, and it's, it just keeps going and updating. And, and so it's, uh, I, I think it's just a phenomenal, you know, coming back to the education, you know, topic. I think for me, you know, Real Vision ha- has been a wonderful source for that. And it's probably something I think would be great for anybody who wants to learn, you know, more about, uh, this, this, you know, game that we're all trying to play and get better at. Um, you've interviewed, you know, in, in this new series, I, Marcus, I, I mentioned the, uh, Felix Zuloff interview. You did phenomenal. The Mark Cahotis interview might be the best interview conversation I've ever seen. Um, he was just so candid about his process and his, um, you know, struggles and successes. Uh, the Tony Deaton w- was another fantastic interview. Um, 
you've had the chance to you know talk to all these guys after after talking to them um, and listening to them. What do you feel you know generally? Is maybe the mon- most underreported story right now. Um, that's that you know you've been able to kind of highlight through these interviews that the mainstream media is missing out on, or, or I guess what is the most important thing investors ought to be focusing on right now that they're not, you know, being introduced to by other other media. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a fantastic question, Jesse, and, and, I, and I honestly don't think there is an easy answer to that. What I've found from from talking to just so many. Brilliant, brilliant investors. Um, I've joked about this before with people, but uh, it's no joke on my end. I, I, I spend my life being the dumbest person in every conversation I have, which is which is a very challenging place to be. I'm going to include this conversation with that. But um, you know what? I, what I've really found when you talk to super smart, super successful investors, whether they be on the short side like Mark, or on the deep, deep value side like Tony. Um, it's about the, the, the process that they've developed over the years and, and having a process and refining it and sticking with it. Uh, I, I don't necessarily think there's there's a specific story that's being underreported. I think we're, we're, you can find whatever story you want if you look for it in the media. It's all there. It's just it's just surrounded by just a ton of stuff that you have to wade through to get to to, to the meat of the matter. But but I've just been I've been overwhelmed at well a how generous these people are with their with their wisdom and their time uh, to sit and talk to me. But I I, I always find uh, after I do these interviews and and um, you know, Tony Deeden was the perfect example of this and, and he'll hate me for talking about it, so I, I pray he's not listening to this um, because he's just a very private man. But you know, I tried to I tried to persuade Tony to do an interview with me. So literally before we launched Real Vision, because I, I'd become familiar with him through mutual friends of ours who'd invested with him, and I just found him to be a, a remarkable man in in many ways. Just the way he thinks and the way he looks at the world. I, I, it's not something I was really familiar with, and I I asked him regularly if he if he'd reconsider and, and do something with me, and he always very politely but very firmly declined. And I honestly. I had some help from Simon Mikhailovich, who's a mutual friend, and, and Dave Collum, who I know you know, that they both kind of put a word in for me. And I, I don't know what it was that finally persuaded him. I suspect it was he, he sat down and worked out that he either had to say no 300 times or yes once. Um, but whatever it was, he, he agreed to do this interview with me. And and we, we spent, I mean, over the course of two days, I mean, we filmed, I guess, four hours of us talking. And, and I we must have talked for 13 or 14 hours over a couple of days, just, just he and I. And it, it was it was wisdom, Jesse. It was, it was it was real wisdom. It wasn't it wasn't insight into where he thinks the market's going to go. It wasn't uh, you know what he thought any asset allocation should be, but it was it, it was experience and it was lessons he'd learned and it was the, the process that he'd gone through in terms of particularly uh, back in ninety nine two thousand when when he was thinking the world was way too stretched and the market was going to collapse. And, and he spoke to me about one weekend where he, he got several of his trusted friends together whose, whose opinions he really valued. And they, and they went away for a weekend and he said, we, you know, we locked ourselves away and we tested and we retested every assumption that we had. And we, we kicked it around with people we trusted. He said, and I, and I came out of that weekend more convinced than ever that I was right and the world was wrong. And and to hear someone that thoughtful say that, you know, you, you can look at it and think, well, that's that's there's hubris writ large right there to think you're right and everybody else is wrong. But I took it a different way to say that if you if you have the honesty and the willingness to test every assumption that you have with people who, you know, will stress test it for you and whose opinions you, you believe and you come out of those meetings and you still believe you're right. You know what an amazing process to go through, and, and of course he he was right, and 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 he proved that to himself and to his investors over the coming couple of years, and and, and that really struck me that to have that that presence of mind to, to to question your assumptions when you realize you're on the wrong side of the market, but having the 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 faith in that process when it reaffirms your convictions to do something about it was remarkable to me, and and and, it, and it's lessons like that that stick with me, and, and you know when I finished the interview with Tony. As I had the same thing with Felix, I had the same thing with Mark, 
And we've just posted my latest conversation with uh, Bill Strong from Miami, who's uh, you know, a, a fantastic value investor who learned his craft at the feet of Bill Ruane. Each one of them has said the same thing to me. And they've said, well, you know, I, I don't know if your viewers are going to really enjoy this. There's nothing special about it. It's just kind of me thinking out loud. That is just priceless information because these guys have, have spent 30, 40 plus years in the business and they've learned things they don't even know they've learned. And so to be able to share that with an audience that is just hungry for, for wisdom, you know, some people want guidance, but I think what I've discovered over the course of this real vision journey is that you can, you can, you can have all the stock tips. Do you want, you can have all the, everyone's opinion about where the S and P is going to be at the end of the year. But at the end of the day, that is a guess. It's it's educated to varying degrees, depending on people's experience, depending on their thoroughness, whatever. But ultimately, any prediction about the future is a guess uh, or insider trading. Um, but but to have someone walk you through their process as to how they make their own guesses about the future, to me, is utterly invaluable. And so when I watch um, you know, the, the regular financial media get people on give them 90 seconds and always say to them, so, you know, where, where do you think this is going to happen to the yield on the 10-year in the next few months? It, it, it's such a wasted opportunity to me. A, I think if you have some of that experience, just shut the hell up and let them talk, uh, you know, as you do on these incredible podcasts of yours. And B, ask them about what they know. Ask them about what they know to be true and what they know to be false. Ask them about the mistakes they've made. What did they learn from those mistakes? How did they fix them? Because you know what? If, if, if I can do an interview with you or Tony or Bill or Felix and, and talk about a mistake they've made that sticks in your head and you get confronted with that same situation and you remember, you know what, I remember this happened to Tony Dean or this happened to Bill Strong and how did they handle this? That to me is, is worth a million stock tips. So that's what's been fascinating to me. And I, I, it's a very long-winded answer to a perfectly straightforward question for which I apologize. But I don't think this is about stories that are, aren't being covered by the media. I think this is a chance to get inside the heads of great investors and, and, and give you the chance and the opportunity to pick what you want out of their experience and use it to make yourself a better investor. And that's just crucial to me. That's such a great point. And that really is what differentiates what you do from the you know mainstream media i i really enjoyed listening to felix talk about um trying to buy silver and buy, buy it too early and just how much pain he went through that yeah. trade but also what he learned from it i mean those things you're right that that stuff's so valuable and it's amazing to me that these guys who have such storied careers and success have not had the the chance to discuss this stuff really before. Um, I, I actually touched base with Roger McNamee again recently, and he, he told me that before I interviewed him, he never had the chance to ever tell anyone the story of his career, which is amazing to me. Crazy. Right? That I mean, he's a guy, probably the most successful technology investor of the past thirty years. And he's never had that opportunity before. So, and, and you know, you, it was really you know you and and Real Vision that inspired me to start this podcast. So I'm I'm, I'm kind well, of a, that's a that's a tremendous compliment. I, I you know thank you for that because you know what you do is is fantastic. I, you know I love listening to these podcasts. But but it, it's this idea of hey you know what if I let somebody talk they're gonna they're gonna come up with something interesting because I know the life they've led I know the experiences they've had the places they've been the stuff they've done how can you fail to get something that's interesting and educational out of those kind of experiences. I mean, to, to me, it's impossible. Yeah. Well, I want to know what you specifically have gotten out of these conversations. How have these recent conversations with these guys affected your own investment process? Oh, look, I mean, there's so many ways. I mean, talk, talk to, when you talk to Mark Cahodes, who's become a dear friend, and I just have so much admiration for that man, it's extraordinary. Um, but you know, Mark says that being a short seller is, you know, is, is a mental defect. And, and I've, I've come to realize that he's actually right. I think he's absolutely right. <laughs> and, and God love him because he, 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 he's remarkable. Um, talking to Bill Strong recently about, about how he looks for companies and, and the, the metrics that he uses to identify companies that he thinks will, will perform well over the long term. Again, that's something that, that I've filed away for, for future reference. Talking to 
to Tony Deaton um, was, I mean, honestly, I, it sounds it sounds grandiose, but it was a life changing experience to me. And I'd, I'd had the good fortune to talk to Tony uh, previously. And, and, you know, at the end of that interview that we ended up running as two parts because it was just too good and it would have been. It would have been detrimental to our viewers to, to, to cut it out and not give them a chance to watch it just to fit the time format, which is a luxury that we have. I, I walked away from that, that two-and-a-half-hour aired interview just cursing myself that I didn't have a microphone in, on me in the car journey on the way to – you know, we had a three-hour car journey on the way down to where we, where we did the interview. And the stuff that Tony talked about in those three hours – was was life changing to me, and, and it's 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 almost impossible to 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 explain why that is, um, because I'm sure if if I if I had had a microphone with me and I'd played that that three hour conversation to ten different people, each of them would have taken something different from it. That's that's the beauty of it. You know, I, we haven't talked about Hugh Hendry. I mean, I went and sat with Hugh down in St. Bart's to to talk with Hugh about. The, the arc of uh, Eclectica against the, the backdrop of the arc of the hedge fund industry. And, you know, Hugh had, had not long closed down his fund. And to have someone who I've looked up to for years, I mean, I have so much respect for Hugh, to, to have him open his heart about the, 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 the pain of closing a fund down and the, 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 the joy of, of reaching the peaks that he did, but, but to, to have someone open their, their heart and their soul to talk about the emotions that go along with it is something that if you listen to an interview like that carefully, there's so much that you can take and, 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 and file away in terms of how to deal with these twin imposters of triumph and disaster. It, it, it's, it's impossible to come up with a list of things that you learn because I honestly think, Jesse, that you don't really know what you've learned sometimes until months or maybe even years later, I don't know. You find yourself in a situation and it and it just sends you, your mind sends you back to some little thing you heard from some guy you'd never heard of. Um, and that's that's happened to me all the time. I mean, I, you know, I, I could bore you for hours about some of the interviews I've done with people that, that no one's ever heard of um, who, who, who genuinely changed the way I, I look at myself, the way I look at investing, the way I look at, at life in many cases. And again, it sounds... Very grandiose, but but uh, that's that's not me. I'm not prone to hyperbole. I, I I try and maintain a very level head at all times. But but these conversations ha- have been life changing for me. Well, and uh, that was really what was um, you know striking to me is uh, you know both Mark and Hugh were so open. Um, they just you know poured out their hearts to you about. Uh, and, and I think that's really valuable too. Even Felix in the interview talked about times in his career where he's needed somebody to hold his hand, right? Yeah. Because it becomes yeah. so difficult. And to be able to openly talk about those things is, is very admirable. Um, you know, Tony Deaton specifically, listening to him, um, I, I thought, uh, you know, very Warren Buffett esque in terms of his, you know, um, level as a thinker and uh, uh, in terms of you know finance and the markets with the major exception of he he shuns you know the media attention and and warren is very overly concerned with courting the media and his legacy and and so i thought that was also very special about um tony that was he was much more uh candid about that stuff um but you know in terms of um your personal investment process um how do you? How are you managing your own funds? I know your background is a trader. Um, you know, considering all the the dynamics and things that you've covered on Real Vision, what you know? How how are you looking at the markets today and managing your own money? Well, yeah, my, look, my background is as a trader, um, and and I'm certainly not trading now because I'm just too busy. And I, and I think if you're going to trade, you have to sit and trade. You can't be running around the world jumping on airplanes and being in strange time zones all the time. So, you know, I, I, I'm very on the record. My, my belief that everybody should have gold in their portfolio, I, I have followed through and I've done that to a significant portion of my portfolio. Uh, I've got more cash now than I've had in I don't know how long. Um, and I have uh, some small equity and small bond positions which are with people who I know and trust who can look after them for me because I just, as I said, if you're going to, it's interesting. When I when I was uh, thinking of setting up Real Vision with Raoul, 
I spoke to uh, Steve Diggle, who who I was working for at the time in Singapore, and is a, a just a, just a fantastic friend of mine, and and a remarkable man. His interviews on Real Vision were were just superb. And I said to Steve, look, you know, we, we were about to raise another fund, and I said, look, I, you know, I've, I've got this thing in my head that I, I really kind of feel like I want to do, but I can't do that and manage a penny of anybody's money because it's not right. I've either got to focus 100% on that or I've got to focus 100% on this. I can't manage money and in my spare time do this real vision thing because it's it's not the right thing to do. And Steve was great. I mean, he, he could not have been better. He said, look, you know, go away and think about it. And, and if you if you really want to scratch this itch, then look, I'm, I'm behind you all the way. And if it doesn't work out, you know, come back. It's But you're right, you shouldn't do both. And so, you know, the one thing that I've I've – I've found as Real Vision has sort of grown and, and taken over all of our lives is that it's not conducive to, to actively sitting and managing your portfolio yourself. And I think that's something that, that I've, I kind of instinctively knew at the outset. Um, and gradually as it's unfolded, a lot of the conversations I've had um, with people have, have led me to, to not only understand that that's the right thing to do, but, but to actually follow through and take those steps. Um, you know, one, one day when, when Real Vision is uh, is not such a massive part of, of my life, you know, I look forward to, to putting all the things that I've learned into practice when I've got time to sit and manage money actively myself. But but I'm 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 very very aware that in these markets and at this time, it's really not a smart thing for me to be doing. Right, and and trying to trade and do anything else, you know, I I I spend a time a, a, a couple of years tra- uh, trading futures, and you know, the thing that was that just drove me nuts was having to be glued to the screens all the time. Yeah, you know? yeah so for sure. If you're well, not you know, glued to exactly the screen right. all the time, you're not doing it right. No, that's, that's exactly right, Jesse. And 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 things can move so arbitrarily these days that uh, you know, the amount of time I spend on airplanes. Um, yeah, you know, my world could change between getting on board and getting off at the other end. So it's just it's just not a smart thing for me to be doing. But you know, I I I understand going back to the point I was making earlier on the 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 amount of knowledge. I mean, not information, but knowledge that I'm accumulating as I have these conversations uh, is extraordinary, and it, and it resonates with me all the time. And I you know I I genuinely do look forward to a day when I can put it to work properly rather than kind of in a, in a part-time fashion. Yeah, and you mentioned you own you own gold and um you know when I recently spoke with Simon he looks at it more Mikhailovich he looks more of it as a uh, an insurance policy um is that do you view it in the same way or do you view it as a uh more of a like a long-term fundamental um investment or how do you see your gold position? Well, let's just give everybody a chance to switch off before I start talking about gold, because I've heard this and they're probably now trying to tune to another <laughs> another station. <laughs> no, I, 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 it's a fascinating subject to me. I, I'm, I'm fascinated by gold. I'm fascinated by the history of it. I'm fascinated by the attitudes towards it. it, it it's, it's the gift that keeps on giving. And I'm very, very much in Simon's camp. You know, to me, uh, the price is absolutely the last consideration. I, I mean, I, when I say I don't care about the price, I, you know, I really don't care about the price. Um, it's it's an allocation, it's an insurance policy, it's a hedge, it's it's a means of it's an allocation, it's a way of holding my my savings in something other than cash, and you know I I have six thousand years of history that tell me that if there's a point where I need that gold, it's gonna it's gonna do what it's supposed to do, and in the meantime uh, I'm giving up you know to one and a half percent interest as I keep seeing on the sides of buses in Singapore, trumpeting the fact that you can get 1.5% interest if you lock your money up for a term deposit. Um, I'm happy to pay that as an option premium to have uh, an allocation to gold, which look, I fully expect at some point that I will own zero gold. Uh, I, I, there will come a point where I don't sell the gold because as I, said, I genuinely don't care about the price, but there will come a point where I can exchange that gold for something I want to hold more. Um, you know, maybe a, a, a waterfront property in Sydney, I will one day be able to exchange my gold for. If that's the case, uh, you know, I, I would rather own the, the, the property in Sydney and, and I'll give up my gold in exchange for that. But until then, you know, I, I, I don't want to own equities at this price um, based on uh, as opposed to gold. I don't want to, I certainly don't want to own bonds at this price as opposed to gold. 
I don't want to own real estate. I, I just find it's an allocation that I'm very happy sitting with, knowing that uh, it, it, it's essentially um, an open-ended call option on any asset on the planet uh, at, at any strike price I want it to be. And it's costing me you know, a couple of percent a year, uh, if you want to compare it to cash, to, to own the option. And I think that's good value. You've mentioned history several times now. Are there certain um, that I think you mentioned you wanted to you considered studying history in, in college? What are, are there certain um, any books or anything that have been a, a big influence on your uh, investment process or your thinking about the markets? Oh, for sure. I mean, tons of them. And it's, it's actually a question I get asked all the time. Um, you know, I. I Devil Take the Hindmost, which I know I know is a favorite of yours, Edward Chancellor, is a, is a fantastic walk through um, financial history that, uh, to my mind, ev- everybody should read uh, at least once. I mean, you talked about market wizards again. There's so much in there. Um, I, recently, Mervyn King's book, The End of Alchemy, was a tremendous, tremendous account of, of, of the insider central banker uh, going through the crisis. Uh, I know you and I have spoken at length about laws of finance. Uh, that, that, to me, uh, I'm currently reading it for the fourth time. It's a it's a fantastic book. Bill Strong gave me a book called The Money Game by Adam Smith, which is a, a, a nom de plume. Uh, if you can find it, I, I think it's out of print, but uh, it, it's it's a fantastic, fantastic book. Um, there's so many. I mean, there are so many books that that I've enjoyed over the years and, and I've I've revisited over the years. And you know, we, we live in a world where, away from books, I, I just like to find people whose thought processes I, I admire. And I'll read anything I can. You know, John Hussman's a perfect example of this. You know, John Hussman's intellectual process is second to none. I think he's, his understanding of the world of finance is, is incredible. His ability to communicate uh, complex ideas is incredible. And you know what? What the way he's seen the world hasn't come to pass in, in the last few years. And, you know, if there's one thing that drives me crazy it's 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 seeing John talk about something on Twitter and sharing that incredible gift with everybody. Here's how I see the world. This is what I think is going to happen. And again, going back to my point earlier, he's he's making a guess about an unknowable future, and and you get the first guy up saying, "Well, that hasn't helped you be right the last three years." You know, it, to me, it's not about that. It, it, it's it, it, you can't assume that you're going to be right about the future. But if I read someone whose whose intellectual rigidity resonates with me i want to read as much of that as i can you know if john's right or wrong in a certain time frame that doesn't bother me i i think if if the way he thinks and the way he puts it out is is worth my reading i'll read it all day long and there's so many guys like that out there um you know I, I, there's there's a great story about dennis gartman which i'm going to save for another day because i'm hoping to interview dennis so shortly but you know the, the flack that dennis cops i just think when you when you have a chance to sit and talk with him is is so ludicrous um, that it is to be completely pointless. But but he's you know he's he's accidentally set himself up as a punching bag. He's anything of the sort. Um, but uh, you know th- this is this is the one big problem I have with with social media is the ability to just kind of troll people for the sake of it because what because the numbers that that, that, that their ideas put up in in, in one chosen. Uh, corner of their little world don't match up to your expectations. It's it's kind of nonsense to me. Absolutely, and you know I I, I agree entirely um, about uh, John Hussman. He's been a friend of mine for a few years now, and I think he's just absolutely brilliant. I also agree with you with social media. I think you know Twitter especially is you know the uh, perfect um, spot for um, logical fallacies. And, you know, right. you know, somebody says, "Hey, I have an idea about this," and they say, "Well, what about your track record?" It's a total right. red herring. Right. It has nothing to do with the actual idea I'm presenting. But people think that's a perfect rebuttal, and, and so you've. I mean, it's very, very difficult to have uh, effective conversations via that medium. Well, I think no, you're, uh, you're right, but but at the same time, it's it's such an amazing source of. Insight and knowledge and the ability to, to, for you to hear people's ideas you'd never normally get a chance to hear from. But it, it, you know, when it devolves into that, well, you know, I, my clients are up 15% a year compounded forever. It's like, oh, let's just – it doesn't that – doesn't, that really – I mean, it genuinely doesn't Zero matter. <laughs> yeah, nothing. Yeah. But, but uh, you know, that, that, I think that great philosopher uh, Peter Parker's uncle said, with great power comes great responsibility. And you know, Twitter is a great power. 
Um, but unfortunately, the amount of responsibility out there is, uh, is perhaps not what yeah. it should be. Well, I, I think the responsibility falls on us. I mean, I, I here's a uh, something I've recommended to a few people uh, about a year ago. I changed all my notifications so the only notifications I see on Twitter are from people that I follow. So I don't see anything else. So people who I respect and I follow and I care, I, I see what they you know if they want to yeah. converse with me, boom, I see it and I you know. But everybody else, I've I've kind of not blocked, but I just don't see it. And and my life is a lot more peaceful <laughs> these days since, <laughs> since I've done that. But, um, but you do realize that now I'm going to, if you don't respond to something I put out, I'm going to start worrying that I'm one of the people that's been blocked. So you need to just, just bear <laughs> no, that in I, mind. I absolutely <laughs> follow you. And speaking of uh, following you, how, how can people keep up with your ideas, Grant, if they want to keep up with your, your thinking and, and, and that sort of thing? Uh, sure. I, three, I guess there's three very easy ways. Uh, on Twitter, I'm at TTMYGH, which is things that make you go home. Um, ttmygh.com is where you'll find my letter and of course um, realvision.com is where you can find out more about what we're doing at Real Vision which uh, you know, I would urge you to do it's, it's, it, you can take a free two week trial and um, I think you'll find plenty on there that is uh, is really different and um, we've just lowered the price to, to kind of set ourselves up with the same model as Netflix so it's uh, you know it's $15 a month and there's, there's, a, there's a ton of of truly fascinating information on it, including a couple of fantastic pieces we've done with you, Jesse. So people should uh, should check that out. Well, I absolutely recommend Real Vision, and and uh, they're not paying me to recommend it <laughs> or any anything of the sort. Um, I'm just a huge fan of the platform, and it's been very valuable to me. Um, I think earlier in this conversation, you said your your process, your interview process, and just your process as a as a person trying to learn in the markets is to ask questions and listen. And I really want to just tell you I appreciate that from a viewer's standpoint. And um, you're just your general demeanor and your humility uh, is an inspiration. So I'm really grateful to, to have had this opportunity to chat with you, Grant. Jesse, coming from you, that is, uh, that, that's incredibly rewarding. So thank you. And, and thanks for having me on. It's, it's a great privilege. Absolutely. And that does it for another episode of Super Investors and the Art of Worldly Wisdom. As always, you can find notes and links related to this show at thefelderreport.com. And until next time, buy low, sell high. Man looks in the abyss. There's nothing staring back at him. At that moment, man finds his character. And that is what keeps him out of the abyss.